Welcome back, my friends. Today we return or resume our series on trust. Now, it's pretty clear, at least from a faith perspective, that Hashem, Almighty God, provides for each of us. And He's quite capable of doing that, unless He's not God. In other words, (laughs) let's make it simple. If He's God then he can provide for us. If he isn't, he isn't worthy of our worship. We are not only supposed to bow our heads in subservience, dedication and devotion, and do what God asks us to do, even when it goes against our nature or inclination. But we've been learning that what God wants from you and from me is for us to vest our trust in him. We should live without anxiety. We should live without worries. Just rely on God. (laughs) Why worry? Hashem is taking care of me. As one wise viewer remarked to me, he says, you make it clear, but it's so difficult to implement. To which I responded, it's just as hard for me. We're all in this together. This really is the journey of a lifetime. The study of Rabbeinu Bechaya's Shara Betochen is the beginning of the journey. Without studying this remarkable work, it is simply impossible for us even to begin the journey towards certainty and tranquility. It's impossible to develop trust. Having said that, even if you toil I do toil a little in trying to understand the material. It's no guarantee that you're actually going to be able to feel this way, to 
function this way. Of course, there's no guarantee unless you give it your best. Our sages told us that if a person says, Yogaiti, I toiled, I tried really hard. But I wasn't successful. Altaman, that's not believable, says the Gemara. If a person says, Lo Yogaiti, I didn't marshal or harness every ounce of wherewithal, and I was easily able to ace this and be successful. Altaman, don't believe that. That's a funny statement. Has it ever happened to you that you didn't really make effort and yet you found success? The Shara B'tachin himself said clearly that at times we hardly make efforts and find extraordinary success and sometimes we make tremendous efforts and find no material success. Indeed, that is true when it comes to material pursuit, whether it's livelihood or any other form of success. However, when it comes to successfully living life, that is, to fulfill one's destiny, one's mission and purpose that was given to them by the Creator Himself, because the Creator loves you and me and all seven billion of us, and He knows us personally, and He cares about us. And we need to develop mindfulness about this faith fact. And if we work hard, toil, at fulfilling our spiritual destiny, it is impossible that we will not succeed because God does not make impossible demands. Hashem only asks us to do our best, but to do our very best. So if you succeeded spiritually without effort or toil, you didn't really succeed. You may have succeeded in outpacing somebody else, but you didn't really succeed because you were supposed to be all you can be. You were given a specific mission. You have a shlichut, a purpose. And Hashem didn't make anybody's mission or purpose easy. And it's precisely because of the efforts we make that we in turn are able to proverbially manufacture or produce something called righteousness. In other words, to please our Creator by answering the call and not forgetting that we were created with a very specific purpose in mind. So if we are Yogaiti, going to toil, try hard, marshal every ounce of ability and wherewithal that God has given us, it is impossible for us not to be successful. It's a very empowering thought. What if it doesn't seem successful to you? My friend, since when are you the judge on what is called success? Who am I to know what is called success? Can any of us really and truly know the ripple effect of our actions? Sometimes we have the good fortune of getting a glimmer, a glimpse of how a good deed we may have performed at a certain time in a certain place engendered or caused amazing things to follow. And sometimes we don't know. And that which seems very small in our world can in fact be titanic, enormous in the other world. 
In fact, there's a sage in the Gemara in the end of Mesechet Brachot who describes having experienced a vision of reality on the other side. And he said it's a, it's a black and white, like negative image, you know, like the old film where that which is black turns out white or that which is white turns out black when you develop the actual picture. He said it's exactly opposite. Man rav, whoever is great, prominent, illustrious in this world, ihu zayir, they're insignificant, they're not even noticed in the other world. Man ihu zayir, the person who seems wholly insignificant, ihu rav, in the other world, is of tremendous importance. The deeds you think don't make a difference can be enormous. And the things that you might ascribe or attribute great prominence to are actually meaningless. So we need to make the efforts. And when we make those efforts, then in turn, we are successful. This is all a bit of a preamble. It's a preamble to trying to understand what we're about to learn today. We're going to learn about the inside job. The person who's on the inside and doesn't need a job, or at least doesn't need to toil. So let's kind of step back for a moment. You know, if you go to page 83 in the Kihat edition, before we introduce the reasons for what the annotator of this particular version of Shara and this translation of Shara B'Tachin, put it, the reasons for human effort. He says, yes, we've elaborated on the fact that a person is often required to exert themselves. And the question then becomes, why? Why did God orchestrate it so? Why didn't he orchestrate it that our needs would be made readily available to us? And as we learned in the previous two episodes, there are so many forms of life that don't have to toil. And it seems that only humanity is, quote, end quote, cursed with having to work really hard. Well, Rabbeinu Bachaya says, this is because it's part of our own destiny and fulfillment. Hashem wants us to work because it's good for us. Because, ultimately, through the efforts and the toil that you and I make, we can achieve great things. Why do you have to work so hard? Why couldn't things be effortless? Rabbeinu Bachaya told us the first reason is to test one's commitment to Hashem. Now, the test is not to see the result. When you're in the educational system, you get tested to see if you actually know the material. Because uh, the rector of the college doesn't know if you know the material or not, so how can they grant you a diploma and then have you working on somebody's teeth and destroying their mouth because you don't know what you're talking about or what you're doing? The college stands behind its dentists or surgeons, and therefore, the college can't grant somebody a diploma saying, oh yeah, this person, he can do your taxes. He does your taxes so well, he fixes you. You end up with a CRA investigation and you're behind a slammer. So, well, I don't know. That's what, my, that's what my CA told me. So no good educational organization that is going to grant a diploma can do so without testing its students first. Hey, one second here. Doesn't God know everything? Why would God have to test us? As we learned 
in the previous episodes, the idea of a test isn't for God to find out or discover if you can or can't do this. But rather, the idea of nisayon is more like a test of faith. It's more like an experience. Can you rise to the occasion? Can you meet the challenge? Will you meet the challenge? And as our rabbis in the Gemara put it, even if somebody was in fact willing to make the ultimate sacrifice, you can't compare it to somebody who made the ultimate sacrifice. So it's not a test as if a discovery, because God knows everything, but rather it's an opportunity to bring forth your inner metal, your inner courage to reveal your inner spirit, your incredible potential. So Hashem makes for challenging circumstances to make us great. That's one reason why we have to work really hard at making a living. And the second reason that we learned about was because Hashem wants us to be kept busy in a productive way. Simply stated, God wants us to work hard because if we wouldn't have to toil for our sustenance, to make a living, we would easily fall into sin. And hard work keeps us away from behavior like that. This was all copiously documented in the previous two episodes and in some of the things we talked about previously. Now as we return to the Shara Betochen's message, we are going to talk about the inside job. You know, the person doesn't have to work. Why not? Because they can make a living without working. Why would they be able to make a living without working? Don't you need to work hard? Didn't God orchestrate and arrange that we should have to be challenged and tested so that we can become all we can be, so that we can avoid sinful behavior because we have too much time in our hands? We get into trouble. That's just our human nature. So Hashem's helping us to overcome our nature and He's making us industrious. He's challenging us so that we rise to the occasion, so that we become spiritually great. And every time we say, oh God, why does it have to be this way? And then we look back and say, wow, because if it wouldn't be that way, hmm, I wouldn't be the kind of person I am. I mean, really, how many times do you look back at a difficult experience, at a challenge you had, and say, you know, in retrospect, I'm really glad I was faced with those challenges because... I'm a better person because of it. I wouldn't have known or been able or understood or appreciated. I wouldn't have had the certain sensitivity. And because I had that experience, I'm therefore better for it. Think of it as a diamond that gets cut. The cut is painful, but in the end, it produces a beautiful gem. So the cutting and polishing of your gem, your beautiful neshama, sometimes comes in a labor-intensive fashion. And it always will come with effort. Why then would it be a person who doesn't have to work? And so we now are going to examine the next portion of the Shara Betochen, if you're following along inside, I invite you to join me on page 89 in the Kihat edition. 
And before we begin today's actual study, I want to emphasize something that I've emphasized prior, but I want to emphasize it yet again. And that is that people who study this Sefer, this book properly, are aware that every word is measured and there is no repetition and there is no poetry, hyperbole, or redundancy. Every single word is measured. And even if it was translated from its Hebrew Arabic by Rabbi Nehudi ibn Tibbin, who was also a great scholar and Rishon in and of himself, each word is precise. Rabbi Nehudi will make his point with a plethora of verbs, a whole bunch of things. He's just going to describe a perfect, perfect Jew, the perfect human, a person who meets every spiritual expectation. And he's going to say, as such, he doesn't need to be tested because he's already great. He's doing all the things that the challenges might do for him. He has self-challenged himself. So he doesn't need the external challenges. But he says this in many, many words. Every word's exact. There is no quick way to study this and do it justice. To race through the next two sentences is to do both the author and ourselves a grave injustice. That's because you'll read this if you don't study it right and say, hey, doesn't seem that way to me. Well, it's because you're not studying it right, because you're racing through it. And once again, I have to tell you that I have great heartache from the translation here because he just conveniently doesn't translate some of the words, just ignores the different meaning and glosses over them. Big problem. And I emphasize this because today there's going to be one word which has two meanings, at least, in the commentaries, and then another version, a possibility of a different word altogether which has another two meanings. We can see that great scholars, people of tremendous piety and inspiration, poured over these writings, ruminated on each word to try and appreciate its deeper and true meaning. The least we can do, the least we can do is take the time to explore the nuanced details and allow them to be absorbed. Allow them to, be, to, so to speak, rush over us, to immerse ourselves within them. Ve'im, yet, or but, says Rabbeinu Bachaya. Ve'im hu magbir if we are going to be speaking about a person, he doesn't say a person who's in, engaged, involved in serving Hashem. He doesn't say a person who is righteous. He says, magbir. What is the meaning of magbir? So the word magbir, at its root source, is gibor. And gibor means strong, not biceps, not, 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 not strength in a broad sense. 
strength of spirit, strength of character. As per the words of the Mishnah, a zehu gibor, who is mighty, who is powerful, who is strong, hakovesh et yitzro, the person who can crush his own inclination, the person who can subdue the feeling that wells up within, the craving, the yearning, the desire. Who is a gibor? The person who you vex, the person who you incite, the person who you do all kinds of things to offend, and they're able to maintain their composure and not lose their cool. That takes gvura, that takes strength. The person who can walk into a hostile environment and remain cool, calm, equitable, collected, he can, he can think things through, through carefully, not phased by all of the hostility that's being directed towards him. It's a very difficult thing to do. Who is a gibber? The person who is seized with a craving and a lust of tremendous, tremendous force, and yet is able to walk away from the very thing that he or she craves and lusts because they believe it to be wrong. Because Hashem says in His Torah, don't eat that. They're hungry. Ragingly so. They desperately want to sink their teeth into that sandwich. But Hashem says, it's not kosher. They desperately want to engage with a person. But it's not a kosher relationship. So they walk away from that. That takes tremendous strength. That's the meaning of the word gibor. We're not talking about a gibor here. We're talking about vimhu magbir. Magbir is a verb. A person who is continuously strengthening, always accelerating, always increasing the volume of their spiritual output, never staying in the same place. Because if we're talking about somebody who's achieved a level of, of proficiency or excellence in Avedis Hashem, in serving God, but they remain there and they haven't progressed, don't even sign up. Rabbeinu Bahaya is not talking about that person. He's talking about a person who is self-challenging. I mean... Think about this for a moment. Who is the strong one? The one who subdues his inclination. That means there's an inclination. The inclination seeks to tangle, engage you, and you put the inclination down. What if there was no inclination? Would you still need to struggle against? Against what? There's not this struggle. There is no inclination. There is no Yetzirah. There is no lust, craving, desire to do something inappropriate, unhealthy, unholy. You don't have a desire for it. So you have to be magbir. Suppose there's a type of food that you have no interest in. Do you grow from day to day in your disdain, dislike, or avoidance of that particular consumption? It's of no interest to you. Suppose there's a certain kind of intimacy that doesn't interest you. Maybe you find it abhorrent, a put-off, I don't know. Do you have to work and say, oh, I would, I would never do that. I would never do that. I, I want to do that. 
I can't be magbir in that area. So what does it mean to be magbir then? What, what is he even talking about? He must have some kind of monster Yetzirah coming up with new schemes and new ideas every single day because as soon as he overcomes one monster, he's got a new monster to fight with. And this is good. What does it mean that he's magbir? Ben is very specific. The first thing about this individual who doesn't need to be challenged is that he self-challenges continuously. He's magbir avayda solikim. Let's take a look at the Marpel Nefesh. He says, yesh tzadik. The im yesh tzadik. And if there is a righteous person, not every righteous person doesn't have to work. No, every righteous person does have to work. And they will toil and struggle to make a living. And it's for their own good. But if there is a righteous person, this tzaddik, this righteous individual who constantly waxes and grows in his or her service of Hashem. So if there's that kind of tzaddik, if there's that kind of person, which is, as the Pat Lechem explains, not in theory, in practice. Not on some imaginary spiritual plane where they're increasing their feelings, their inspiration, their intensity of, or focus. No, no, no. We're talking about somebody who actually harnesses this force. Somebody who's actually intensifying their efforts. As we read on in the body of the text, He chooses to revere Hashem. He chooses to revere Hashem. What, is it, what does that mean? A person has to constantly wax and grow in his service to Hashem and he has to choose to, to revere Hashem, to have respect for Hashem. He has respect. He says, I, I have Yerat Shemayim. You know, sometimes people are called... That person is a Yira Shemayim. A Yira Shemayim means a person who literally fears. What does it mean to fear? It means that if there's a question, excuse me, a certain food is kosher or not kosher, it would be regarded in the same way an anaphylactic individual would look at something which might be tainted, say with a resin or residue from peanuts or something like that. So the person who serves Hashem with absolute utter focus, dedication, and diligence, he takes a look at something which might get in the way of his neshama, and he's terrified from it. Rabbi Tzvi Grunwald, um, related a story that he heard from, I don't remember who it was, uh, one of the Hungarian Gedolim, or uh, maybe even a Rebbe, and the story was that the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe of Lubavitch, had these teeth that needed to be filled. He had cavities. But he didn't want to fill the cavities because he was afraid that it might infringe on his observance of kashrut. I know that sounds a little extreme to some of you, but he was afraid that if you have a filling, so then it might absorb when you eat something which is hot and then... And then when it comes to Pesach, you have chametz, but you couldn't have really koshered the... So, and he had terrible headaches. He suffered terribly. And the Rebetzin 
speaks to this Rav, whose name I forget, and says, try to speak to my husband, please. Tell him that it's not a shaila. It's not a... So, so he said to the Rebbe Rashab, said to the Rebbe, it's a it's a chshosha, the chshosha. It's like a, a suspicion of a suspicion. It's not like a well-grounded halachic concern, something you have to be. And the Rebbe Rashab said that violating a suspicion of a suspicion of halacha is for him more painful than an awful headache caused by a tooth that needs to be fixed. Can you imagine that? By the way, I can't. I can't imagine it. I, I don't understand it. To me, it's like, like outer space. I, I just don't get it. Of course, because you and I are not tzaddikim. <laughs> it was a chassid who was, I don't know, it's like at the turn of the century. Whatever was called old in those days. Maybe he was 75, 80. Maybe the equivalent of somebody who was 97 today. And they said, uh, it's time to get your affairs in order. And he said, no, 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 I got, I got time. I got time. So they said to him, uh, you're not getting younger. And, you know, people don't live forever. So maybe, he said, no, 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 you don't understand. He said, I had a bracha from the Rebbe that I should be a Yerushamayim. I should revere heaven. I should have real awe for Hashem. He said, I'm so far away in my estimation, it's going to take me at least another decade to get there. So I, I got no problem. Now, whether or not this, the humility of this chassid, in fact, played itself out, and he wasn't, there was a Yerushamayim, I don't know. The, the vignette in, gives us a, an appreciation. What's the meaning of a Yerushamayim? It's the meaning of to revere heaven. So what does it mean when Rabbeinu Bahaya says, oh, this person, he's magbir, he's constantly upping the ante, increasing the intensity of his spiritual output, and he's boicher birasi. He chooses to revere Hashem. So the first verb here is magbir. Magbir. He's intensifying. The second verb that's used here is boicher. He's choosing. He's intensifying, and he's making a choice. And then he says, And he trusts in him. Ha, this is the biggie. The trusting in Hashem. I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago. A lifetime of effort. The journey of a lifetime. To really trust Hashem. To actually become cool, collected, for real. Not just lip service. Really, to have no anxiety about the future. If I have what I need for today, tomorrow's not here yet. Tomorrow, Hashem will provide for me tomorrow. Never mind next week, next month, next year, next decade. People are worried about decades away. This person says, I, I worry about nothing. Baruch Hashem, I got what I need for today. I think I'm fine. And a person who doesn't have what he or she needs for today, they say, that's fine. I'll receive it from Hashem because I'm doing my part. Hashem's going to do His part. And to really feel that way. So this is a person who's boiteach. He not only increases his output of serving Hashem, he not only makes, make, makes some kind of choice here, which we don't really know what this choice is yet, but furthermore, he's boiteach. He's trusting in Hashem. Be'inyonai Torah. To ve'olamo in the realm of his pursuit of Torah, as well as his material and mundane needs, worldly matters. 
The Neder Bar-Kodesh says, It doesn't worry about his spiritual concerns. He does what he has to do, but he doesn't worry about it. He's not worried about, how will I have an etrog on Pesach? Where will my matzah come from? Of course, he makes all the efforts that he can, but he knows that the etrog will come from Hashem and the matzah will come from Hashem. And so will the wine for Shabbat. And how will I be able to succeed in understanding this or mastering that or knowing this? Hashem is, I'm going to do my part. And Hashem is going to grant me success. And I won't have any anxiety about it. Because I know I will have done my best. Tell me, how many people can actually say with full confidence, I have done my best? And now it's in Hashem's hands. I'm ashamed to admit this, but I get anxious before I teach a class because I've prepared and I don't know if I prepare enough and I don't know if I understand this well enough. And I'm hoping and praying that I'm going to be able, A, to understand it myself and to find the right words to be able to explain it to you, but I shouldn't be anxious. I should have betachen. But I don't know if I really worked as hard as I should have. I don't know if I put enough effort into this. But if I did, or if I would, and I wouldn't be distracted for even a moment, I'll be utilizing every single minute Hashem gifts me, then I shouldn't be anxious. Because Hashem doesn't make demands that are impossible. You understand what I'm talking about. This is a very unusual person we're describing here. Probably somebody that you or I will never be. And that's perfectly fine. That's okay. Maybe it's not. <laughs> I don't know if you and I will never have to work to make a living. But when we will toil, and when we will work hard, we'll remember it's for our best. And we'll know that because the toil and the challenges that are coming our way are to make us better, that if we will self-challenge, we will necessarily remove from ourselves some of the orchestrated challenges that Hashem will place before us. What I mean to say is, even if this person isn't you or me, and he probably isn't, it doesn't mean this idea can't be true in a microcosm. There's a beautiful sicha, an edited talk from the Rebbe, where he says that the Zohar, the foundational work of Kabbalah, oftentimes speaks in cryptic terminology. So the Zohar comments on the words that describe the pharaohic exile of the Jewish people in Egypt. You know, the way they were co-opted into becoming the pharaoh's slaves. And the kinds of pressure, the daily duress that they had to suffer. So we hear, the scripture says this, that it was b'choymer, Ubilvenim. Chomer is mortar. Levenim is bricks. Ubachola vodabasada. And all kinds of work out in the field. So the Zohar, in characteristic fashion, makes a funny statement. At least it seems funny. It says, Bachomer? Ah, dokal v'choymer. That refers to the method of demonstrating 
points of veracity in the Talmud, where we can sometimes, and this, there are actually 10 places in the scripture itself where we have kalvachomer employed. Kalvachomer literally means light and heavy. So if a person can lift 100 pounds over the head, it should be obvious they could lift 50. You don't have to say it. We have this with regard to certain mitzvot where more severe things are not spoken of because lighter things, lighter infractions are proscribed. We have this with regard to some of the behavior in the Torah. Kal v'chomer. The Talmud, the Gemara, uses this methodology fairly often. So the Zohar says, do you know what the meaning of the Egyptian exile is? Kal v'chomer. And you must be thinking like, Whoa, really? You mean the Pharaoh was going, hey guys, says the Gemara. And everybody said, oh, this is so hard. And he said, let's do that again. So the Gemara tells us, what does it mean? Chomer is kava chomer. No, chomer is mortar. You have to make cement. And if they wouldn't make cement, their own babies would be mixed into the cement if they couldn't find enough material and produce enough mortar for the building of the pyramids or whatever else it was they were building. Oh, Levenim. Levenim, da says the Gemara, says the Zohar, libun hilchasa. This is the whitening of halacha. The whitening or cleansing of halacha means that sometimes we have a whole cacophony of Torah ideas, different opinions, all of which are valid, but only one of which can actually be followed. We need a ruling. And that process is called libun, laundering, cleansing. Like, figuring out what the halacha actually is. So, this idea then of libun hilchasa, finding out the halacha, by the way, it's pretty difficult to do these things. You should study some Talmud if what I'm saying doesn't make sense to you, and you'll, you'll see. But that's the bricks. So the Rebbe says, here is the point. The concept of the Egyptian exile is not a historic detail just as the exodus isn't merely something that occurred in the past. This is a process that we're continuously undergoing, as the Alter Rebbe illustrates in a very vivid way in the 47th chapter of Tanya. He says each and every single day we have to be leaving Mitzrayim. When the Gemara says, Behold, Dor Vador, in every generation we have to see ourselves being able to experience exodus, being able to leave the narrow straits, which is the meaning of the word Mitzrayim behind, that's not something that's generational, like once in a generation. It's Bechol Yom V'Yom, the Alter Rebbe says. It's a daily occurrence. That means the things that you find impossible to do today. And you toil and you make tremendous effort and you are able to succeed. And then it becomes a little easier because you've done this already. Now you have to strive for the next level. And if you do so, you remove from yourself the exile that is imposed by the proverbial pharaoh, by the metaphorical or euphemistic exile that's challenging you to make you best. But if you self-challenge, hey, there's an idea. You can actually avoid those challenges by intensifying your efforts all by yourself. How would I make those efforts? Learn a page of Gemara, you'll find out. It's, a, it's an incredible pursuit, a fraught and difficult, really, really challenging endeavor.
knock yourself out. The more you toil at Torah, the more you toil at overcoming your own Yetzer inclination, the more you continue to strive for greatness in serving Hashem, the less you'll be challenged. That's the upshot here. The words of Rabbeinu Bachaya in their literal level are speaking about a person who actually won't have to work or toil to make a living at all. But the message is something that every one of us must or should absorb and internalize. If we will try harder at our Vedas Hashem, we'll be less challenged. As I understand it, and I may be wrong, this is not an all or nothing. Although the author uses very, very clear brushstrokes, he goes to an extreme, this could be experienced microcosmically as well. So, trust, trust is something that has endless levels. We can continue to build our trust in Hashem's Torah and in, in, in Olamo. And the Neder Bakredesh says something phenomenal here. He says, You're constantly strengthening, overpowering, pushing harder and harder. You're constantly achieving more. If you're constantly working hard at achieving more, then you'll find that the road in front of you has been cleared of the obstacles. Things that are usually strewn in your path that might cause you to trip or stumble that you have to work at avoiding will be taken away because you're already challenging yourself because you're already working so hard at doing the right thing. This is easy to talk about, of course. Very hard. Very difficult to implement. I think that in order to appreciate what, what Abenu Bachaya is trying to say here, it would be helpful for us to take a look for a moment. In the sixth chapter, of what is called Shmone Prokim, eight chapters, that was authored by the great Rabbeinu Moshe ben Maimon Hasfardi or Rambam. Rambam authored eight chapters, Shmone Prokim. And these were written as a preface to the study of the tractate of Mishnah that doesn't deal in laws or customs. It doesn't talk about what the rulings should be in a particular circumstance or how we must comport ourselves by the rule of law. But rather, it's It's the one tractate that speaks about measures of piety, and the Rambam gives us some basic principles about striving in a manner that's considered beyond the letter of the law. So in the sixth chapter, of these eight chapters of Shemayin Prakim, the Rambam says, here I'm going to illustrate for you the difference between what he calls ha-chasid ha-me'ule, the naturally pious, the, the, the super pious one. In modern Hebrew, me'ule means fantastic, great. That's like, Top of the line. Obein HaKovesh Yitzra. And the person who is 
conquering his inclination. The person who is by the force of his desire to serve Hashem able to subdue and to crush the natural inclination that he or she was endowed with by God. Because not everything God gave us was meant to be celebrated or was meant to be enjoyed or used. Lots of things God gave us were meant for us to push away. I mean, look at the world around us. I, as a Jew, have to look at a world around me and know that there are many, many things which are prohibited for me to engage in. Why? It's God's world. Didn't He want me to enjoy the world He created? He did. Didn't He want me to utilize all of His handiwork, to harness it for a higher purpose? Well, broadly speaking, yes, but no, not everything. There's only a slender amount of things I can actually harness and use for a holy purpose. And there are certain things which are anathema. They have to be pushed aside. But that is precisely their purpose. As we say about the satanic, so to speak, force or energy, shvirata, zuhi takanata. You know how you fix this? <laughs> By breaking it. It's like you want the nut? Crack the shell. Crack the shell. I don't want to break any. I don't break a shell. I want to fix the shell. Hey, the shell wasn't made to be used. It was made to protect the nut. Now crack it. Shatter it. Then you get the nut. Break the eggshell. Use the egg. You can't get to the egg without shattering the shell. So there's lots of things that God created for the purpose of us breaking. Sometimes that breaking is inward focused. It means breaking ourselves. And if we work hard enough at it, we bring joy on high. We create righteousness. So Rambam says, the philosophers of his day and the generations or centuries prior believed that the person who controls himself, the person who exhibits self-control and doesn't do the things that he or she lusts, craves, and desires, These are the things that the person who craves bad things, bad behavior. They find criminal behavior enticing. They find illicit behavior particularly enchanting and <laughs> catches their eye, draws them in. And here's a person, despite the fact that the nichsafalim, despite the fact that he has a natural inclination, he's drawn towards these things. He controls, he subdues his inclination. So a person like this is mitzdair, he's in pain, and he's even nizok, he's even, he's even blunted. He's hurt by his efforts because he's not allowing himself the freedom of expression. Sounds a little like Freudian psychology, just by the way. He says, this guy's frustrated. He's got trauma because he won't act out on his desires and inclinations. But the philosophers say, Ha-chassid, the pious one, he is drawn after things which are appropriate, which are lofty, which are exalted. He does good things. He, he craves these things. He desires these things. So, Chassid, Yeser Chashuf, the pious person, is in a far greater place, a far higher standing. 
He's yoter shalem. He's much more intact, complete, or perfect. From the person who struggles, who works at overcoming his own weaknesses, at dispelling his own darkness. That person is He's got to be in a lower standing because after all, he has all these disgusting lusts and cravings. He's a, he wants illicit things. Sad, but bad. Says Rambam. But if one investigates the words of our sages, one studies Torah properly, then you discover that that approach, that notion, is entirely wrong-headed. In fact, Rambam says, if you learn the Mishnah right, you will see that a person who lusts sinful and illicit behavior, he's drawn into them. He is far greater. <laughs> that person achieves real perfection. The person who never had to overcome those demons. The person who never had to struggle with that kind of unhealthy desire. The person who never experienced, so to speak, the pain of self-denial. Because he never wanted anything bad. Because in fact, Rambam says, the way our sages put it, the more pious or perfect you'll be, the more you'll be challenged. And he quotes a Gemara that's found in Mesech Sukkah. The Gemara says, Kol Of a person's at a higher standing, he or she has a greater evil inclination. And the schar ha-meishel the person who actually exhibits self-control, achieves divine remuneration that's far greater, l'firoi v'atzar, the pain that we spoke of is actually valuable. That's what the Mishnah said. Lefum tsara, according to the pain, agra, comes the reward. No pain, no gain. And according to pain comes the gain. It's an amazing thing. Not only are we not better served by not being challenged, but in fact, when we're not challenged, when we have that proverbial silver spoon in our mouth, we never achieve greatness. Real greatness is achieved when there is opposition and hostility. Maybe inner opposition and hostility, but still, inhibition. Things which stand in the way of achievement. And you overcome those things. That's how you become great. That's called the making of a hero. Historically, if you look at people who achieved great things, they were almost never born advantaged. And many people born with that euphemistic silver spoon never amount to much. Which doesn't mean that you have to yearn for poverty. It does mean that you shouldn't be getting everything for free. And by the way, if I may, Good parenting dictates that you don't give your children everything they want. You make them work for it. But what if you have lots? Well, give it to the needy. 
giving things to your children for free actually spoils them. Giving kids everything they want just because they want it is not how you create excellence. It is the path of greater resistance. It is much easier to give in to your children. We love our children. We want, we, we want to give them everything. Why wouldn't we give them? Well, because it's not healthy. Because human beings weren't built to easily get everything, to make no effort. I mean, that goes back to what we talked about. Why Hashem challenges us. So Rambam says, this is the reason Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel famously says in the Torah Kohanim, in the Safra, which accompanies the book of Leviticus and Parshas Kedoshim, Rabbi Shimon ben Gamliel said, A person doesn't say, cheeseburgers? Feh! I'm Jewish. I hate them. I could never look at them. The smell makes my skin crawl. I could never wear a suit woven of wool and linen. It would be so scratchy and uncomfortable for me. I would never want to engage in illicit sexual intimacy. Terrible! It makes me, it's abhorrent to me. No. Shavagulil says something shocking. He says a person say Fshi. Of course, of course I'd like those things. I can't understand how a person did A, B, and C. Why not? I can't understand it. Oh, you mean you're okay with that behavior? No. What, what am I supposed to do? My father in heaven said no. That's good enough for me. They tell a ridiculous story of a fellow who came to a rabbi and he said, Rabbi, my son has lost his mind. He says, lost his mind? Well, why? What's happening? He says, he's, he's, he's dancing with loose women and he's eating non-kosher food. And rabbi said, his son's perfectly normal. If he starts dancing with the non-kosher food, and he starts to eat the illicit woman, then we have, okay, this, in Yiddish the joke sounds better. But the point is, there's nothing outlandish or crazy when somebody engages in illicit behavior. A person will say, my son is insane. He took narcotics. He's not insane. He's a kid and you put him in a bad environment. And that's what his friends are doing. And it's peer pressure. What do you expect him to do? Which doesn't mean we should put ourselves into bad situations. Self-challenging does not mean that we should tempt ourselves. A person is actually prohibited from doing this. Every morning we pray, So what are we talking about then? If, if the challenges aren't coming my way, what kind of challenges should I be looking for? What does Rambam mean? What, what, what if I'm not challenged? What if I don't have this desire? Am I supposed to immerse myself in sensual pleasure and, and train myself to like things that I don't like? <laughs> I mean... Between me and you, I, I, I can't even imagine eating a cheeseburger. I think God never came near it. I, I can't even look at it. The, the, the smell makes me, my skin crawl. It's just, that's nothing righteous or holy. It's just a fact. What, should I undo that? Should I hang out at McDonald's and smell everybody's cheeseburgers and watch them eat it and say, ah, it smells so delicious. But you know what? I'm going to come to, uh, 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 and then stop it. <laughs> the Rebbe once told the story that there was a man who was living a pious life, but he was living in a shtetl, you know. Almost everybody in the shtetl was Jewish. You know, all these little tiny settlements in Eastern Europe. 
filled with Jewish people because they couldn't live in the big cities. And he said, you know what? You know what? I'm, I'm going to challenge myself. I'm going to move to the big city and I'm going to be surrounded by all kinds of people and all kinds of behavior and I'm still going to remain a pious Jew. So he moved to the big city. But of course, he was living in a Jewish neighborhood. And, and, and you know, he was still going to shul every day. And then he said, big deal, to remain righteous, pious, following the, the code of Jewish law when I'm living in this kind of neighborhood. I'm going to leave my neighborhood. I'm going to move into a very un-Jewish neighborhood, a place that's hostile to Jewish values, and I'm still going to toil and work at it. And so he did that, but he had his own home, and he kind of cloistered himself. And then after a little while, he said, well, of course, I'm still maintaining a pious life because even though I'm living in a different kind of environment, my own environment is, in fact, n unchanged. So he said, I need to start hanging out in the taverns, in the bars, in, in the coffee houses. I need to mix and mingle with all kinds of people. And he continued to challenge himself until, as the story goes, in the end, he succumbed. And the Rebbe said, it's bad, it's bad behavior. It's a bad idea. Never, ever put yourself in a challenging situation. So what then are we talking about? And I think understanding the words of Rambam here in Shemona Prakim is actually critical to appreciating what Rabbeinu Bachaya says. So I have always believed that the, the only way we can really study and appreciate the depth of Torah is uh, by, by studying Chassidus together. And amazingly, amazingly, the Alter Rebbe addresses this in an extraordinarily illuminating way in the 15th chapter of Tanya. The Alter Rebbe in the early chapters of Tanya, besides describing the makeup of what is a soul and what are the, so to speak, the moving parts and what are the garments of the soul and how does the soul function and what is our purpose. After going through all this, the Alter Rebbe identifies different levels. He says a tzaddik, a holy righteous person, is a person who has worked so hard on themselves, they've actually cured themselves of their everyday humanity. They no longer have slothfulness or anger as part of their makeup. They've actually broken the atmosphere. They're in orbit. And he says, a rasha, a wicked person, is a person who not only craves these things, but is acting upon those cravings. And then there's the in-betweener. <laughs> that, that could be me or you. The person who never does anything wrong, but is always challenged and drawn in by illicit behavior. And the Alter Rebbe calls him a benini. And in the 15th chapter of Tanya, he says, There are two levels. There's the Oyvidelikim, there's the one who serves Hashem, and there's the Loyavodai, the person who doesn't serve Hashem. Now, this sounds very strange because you're talking about a person who does all the mitzvahs. And let me tell you, doing all the mitzvahs is really hard. So, what do you mean it's Loyavodai? He does all the mitzvahs and he's not serving God? How can that be? Al-Tarabi says, No. I didn't mean he's doing bad things. He's not wicked. He never does anything wrong. It's a perfect scorecard. He's got a perfect scorecard. So what does that mean? If he's doing every single mitzvah that comes his or her way, and he's engaged in the study of Torah 100% at all times, to the point that we could attribute the saying of our sages, his mouth is constantly uttering Torah phrases. He's always engaged in something positive. So that's Are you kidding? How, how could that be person not be serving Hashem? So the Alter Rebbe says he's called Loyavodai because he's not battling his inclination anymore. And Oyvidalikim is not somebody who served God past tense. It's a person who's serving God now. 
person who's toiling, a person who's making efforts, a person who's constantly trying his or her best to overcome the Yitzhahara. That's a battle. It's a real struggle on the inside. And on a person's own, a person usually can't achieve this. But apparently, with the Bainini, there could be a person who's, yeah, he's not working hard at it. How's, how's that possible? Alta Rebbe says, well, there are some people, doesn't have a Yitzhara. doesn't have unhealthy desires and a drive for illicit behavior. He, he's a bookworm. He's an intellectual. He's not interested. He's a masmid belimudibitivit. Some people are like that. Not because he's righteous. I guess that's what they call in the 21st century a nerd. He's a nerd. He's a self-professed nerd. He loves being a nerd. He says, yeah, I'm a nerd. I'm a geeky guy. I love, I love the library. It's my favorite place. Do you want to go to the dance hall and boogie a little? He says, are you kidding? What am I going to do there? I look like a fool. I don't know how to dance. Girls laugh at me. I, 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 can't, I can't pick up any girls. I, I, I'm not interested. Do you want to eat some delicious razzle-dazzle? Try a little uh, marijuana? The kid says, what do you want from me? I'm not interested. He's a nerd. A geeky, nerdy kid. He likes to be in the library all day. If I'm offending anybody with this terminology, you forgive me, and it's not as if I have experience from all the things I'm talking about, but I can, you know, he's a kid. He's doing the stuff people do. We find, with regard to some of the early philosophers, the Greek philosophers, that there were people who exhibited really extraordinary behavior. It's said of Socrates that he gave everything away. I remember reading that Socrates, all he retained was a cup because he needed to drink water. And then one day he saw a man lay down near one of these springs and just drink. And he said, oh, I don't need a cup. So he gave his cup away to somebody who needed it more. He pursued virtue. Aristotle wasn't such a self-denier, but he talked about virtue. Living a life of virtue, pursuing virtue. What is virtue? How do we define virtue? How do we get to live a virtuous life? Just people who want to be virtuous. They feel good about that. They feel, they feel accomplished. You know, every person has to feel good about themselves. Every person has to, so to speak, justify his or her existence. Here's a person who justifies their existence by living a virtuous life. So what's wrong with that? Nothing. But he's not an evidelikin. Because the fact that material pleasures and sensuality don't hold a place of particular importance for this person, and that he's not really interested in these things, doesn't bode well for his or her avodas Hashem. Because in avodas Hashem, in the service of God, what we need to have is avoda, servitude. So you may be doing all the right things, but it comes to you easy. And because it comes to you easy, because it comes to you effortlessly, you don't get credit for doing it. So how would you then? Ah, says the Alter Rebbe, the answer to the question is to become an oivadelikim. We all have a nature, our nature, our orbit of comfort. Transcend the orbit of your comfort. Go beyond what comes to you easily. Suppose you're a generous person. There's a limit. There's your orbit of generosity. 
go beyond that. There's some people who can't part with a dollar. They can put their hands in their pocket. They can't take it out. These are stingy people. There's some people who are generous. Happy to share. Five, ten dollars, I'll give you a dollar. How about two? No, well, that's, that's unreasonable. I've got to take care of myself. So that person's Avedus Hashem starts not with one dollar, but when they give two. So what if it's not my nature? What if I developed this nature? What if I wasn't generous, but I forced myself to be generous? What if I wasn't studious, but I worked on it until I became studious? What if I wasn't one of those virtuous, geeky, nerdy people who wanted to live a virtuous life, but I made myself virtuous? And now it's second nature. Here Galatz made Altar says, you, you kind of accustom yourself to learning with great diligence. It became hahergal, it became habitual, to the point that the habit evolved into tevasheni, into an acquired nature. In Hebrew, a second nature. What happens then? Then the Altar says, you were an Avedelikim, but you aren't any longer. You toiled long and hard to get to that vantage point, to reach this level of accomplishment and achievement, but now that you've gotten there, you're comfortable. If you're comfortable, well, then you're not serving Hashem anymore because that requires transcending self. This goes into the Exodus paradigm, going beyond. The only way is, if you go beyond what you're accustomed to, and here the Alter Rebbe says, throwing light on the Gemara in Mesechet Chagiga on page 9, side 2. V'zehu, v'zeh now will understand the words of the Gemara. The Oivet Alekim, what is a servant of God? Misha Shoyne Pirkei Meye Pa'amim? A person who studies a hundred times? No. Misha Shoyne Pirkei Meye Pa'amim V'echad, a person who reviews his studies a hundred and one times. You know what Le'avodeh? You know what a non-servant of God looks like? The person who reviews his studies a hundred times. On the surface, it makes no sense. The one time is the difference? You want to tell me that's one time, it's even better? I get that. But this is a person who doesn't serve God, and this is a person who does? Says the Altar Rebbe, yes, because in those days, they would review the lessons a hundred times. That was their orbit of comfort. That was what they were used to. That's what they're accustomed to. That's what they're expecting. That's what they're anticipating. So if a person went beyond that, that means he's shattering the paradigm. He's leaving that frame. He's breaking out of those limitations. That's the exodus. That's the continuous redemptive energy that we were talking about before. And he says, there's a metaphor. The Gemara says, you know what it's like? It's like a person who would rent a donkey for... uh, Ten farsangs, ten parsos, ten miles or kilometers. And it cost you a zuza. It cost you a zuz, a buck. But if you want to do it for 11, it cost you two bucks. In modern terminology, you have your limits on how many miles a day you get when you rent the car. There's unlimited mileage or you have a limited mileage. You say, you can only, when you lease a car, you can drive this many miles. And if you go over those miles, oh, you pay. That's when you pay. That's when they get you. Why? Because this is what you paid for. And this is what you didn't pay for. 
So you bring your car back to the car rental and there's a couple of gallons of gas missing. They're gonna charge you 20 bucks a gallon. He said, this is crazy, it's highway robbery. He said, no, that's what we charge for gas. You didn't like it, fill up elsewhere. Or prepay for the tank. So the point then is that when a person struggles and toils and goes beyond their nature, that's when they're an evadilikim. And this, my dear friends, is what we speak about when we say challenges. We're not talking about getting challenged with the Yetzirah per se. Rabbeinu B'chaya is not talking about the Kovishas Yitzre per se. The Rambam was a stepping stone to get to our understanding of how the Alter Rebbe defines it in Tanya. And the Alter Rebbe goes on to say, how does a person get there? Ah, he gets there through constant studying of Hasidus and contemplating its ideas and its messages and absorbing them and internalizing them. This is how a person is able to get there. Now let's go back to Rabbeinu B'chaya. Now we can understand what he says so beautifully. He's an Oivadalikim. He's constantly striving. He's always working to do more. He doesn't stay satisfied with his past achievements or accomplishments. He's not going to remain, so to speak, safe in his orbit of comfort, but always going to keep pushing. And this is a person who is beicher. He's choosing. He's not waiting to be challenged. And if he'll be challenged, he or she will respond to those challenges. He's beicher b'yerasei. He's choosing because of his respect, because of the awe that he has for Hashem. He's fighting his way to greatness, working even harder. And he's achieving and constantly placing his trust in Hashem. And now we continue. He avoids the inappropriate things. Avoids the bad stuff. So the bad stuff that he's avoiding, this is not simple. It's not easy. You know, deplorable things, inappropriate things. He avoids those things. He's constantly yearning. He's a thirst. You know, like a person who has money, it says, always wants more. He's never satisfied. The Gemara says, Human nature is such that a person who has a money, has a hundred dollars, he wants Messiah. He immediately wants two hundred. He's not happy with a hundred. He has five hundred, he wants a thousand. He always wants more. He always wants to double things. Truth be told, if that's the way you look at material possessions, it's awful. But there's something beautiful about that part, that element of human nature. You just have to orient it right. The Rebbe would always tell people when they would accomplish something good in the areas of Yiddishkeit, making a difference for others, doing things the way Hashem, God wants the world to be. He would say, May it be fulfilled with you, the Gemara's observation on human nature. Now, you have a level of achievement, you shouldn't be satisfied with it. Now you want even more. I must tell you, the Rebbe was never satisfied. Somebody once did something that the Rebbe wanted. He said, Rebbe, is the Rebbe satisfied? The Rebbe sa- is the Rebbe happy? The Rebbe said, I'm always happy. They're never satisfied. And as it says in the book of Hayom Yom, this is one of the interesting things where we see that the material pursuit and spiritual pursuit are totally antithetical in nature. That which is a virtue in the material realm is the greatest demerit in the spiritual realm. The greatest virtue in the material realm is to be satisfied with what you have, not craving or wanting more. It's the greatest demerit as far as spiritual growth is concerned. The worst thing of all is I'm happy, I'm satisfied. 
should never be satisfied. Not be satisfied with your knowledge of Torah. Not be satisfied with your acts of loving kindness. Not be satisfied with your ability to polish your soul, to, to make yourself a more sensitive and more compassionate person, to become more spiritually minded. Never be satisfied. Always continue to toil. Don't be satisfied with the level of betachen you reach. Yearn for more. Constantly. That's what it's about. And a person who is loy yivat b'menucha, this would have to be the kind of person that if faced with a situation of peace, serenity, tranquility, that it doesn't cause them to rebel, as, as is human nature. It's human nature. As the Tev HaLavanan says, Ba'avur ha Because of the tranquility. The tranquility causes that kind of behavior. Peace is easy. Life is easy. Life is easy means lower my expectations. Kick back, relax. That's no good. You have to always be pushing yourself. Always be burning with a desire, with a yearning to accomplish more in your spiritual growth. Don't kind of uh, look for, so to speak, tranquility. Easy. Look at the easy way. A person like that is not going to get what he or she needs without effort because, because they're yata lashal, because that's exactly what they're looking for. And that's not good. So Hashem will challenge them. You know, my friends, there's a, a beautiful example of this that's found with regard to our patriarch Yaakov. By the way, I should tell you that, you know, I said before about how words, you have the Menoyach Alvava says that the word Shalva can mean peace, but it also could be related to the biblical word Shoigig Omichshel. Like it says, there's a story of, of, in the time of King David, where the ark was being transported into the city of Jerusalem, and King David made a terrible mistake. And it wasn't being carried by the Kohenim, but instead it was on the wagons. And as this ark is being transported, it seemed like the ark was going to fall down. And there was a well-intentioned fellow, his name was Uzzah. And he tried to catch the ark, but you know how to touch the ark. And the scripture says, God's anger flares against, is inflamed against Uzzah. He's literally smites him there. Al-Hashal, for this error. Sometimes an error in judgment. Hashem has high expectations of very righteous people. So the Shal is an error. So on one hand, it's possible, says the Menei that the meaning of Layat al is doesn't kind of move into the area of error. Not a willful transgression, but by virtue of the fact that, you know, the intensity is, has been diminished. It doesn't feel this need to be on guard. So that sometimes breeds a sense of less, less than careful observance. You know, there's an expression in English, familiarity breeds contempt. If that's the kind of person that is, he won't get familiar. He won't get it easy. But the simple meaning of his shalva is literally peace. So I want to share with you an incredible statement that's made at the beginning of Parsha's Vayeshev. So it says, Vayeshev Yaakov, Yaakov settled. What does this mean? 
So Rashi, quoting our sages, says, Bikesh Yaakov Lesha Bishalva. Father Jacob has had a challenged life. He, by the way, was like the Chassid HaMa'ula. He had everything perfect. His inclinations were all good. Esau, Esau, he was challenged. Yaakov had it easy. So he was challenged. He had to rise to greatness. He had to demonstrate his ability to think and act outside the box so that he could become Yaakov. And then after dealing with Esau and getting the blessings and dealing with Lavan and all the challenges that came along with that and then facing Esau again, so it says, Bikish Yaakov Leishu B'Shalva. He just wanted to relax. He wanted to take it easy. So what happened? Kofatzol of Yosef, the angst of Yosef's story sprang upon him. The sages say something stunning. Tzadikim Vakshim Leishu B'Shalva. Tzadikim want to, they want to be in a tranquil state. Amr HaKadosh Baruch Hu, God says, Is it not enough that eternity is tranquil? You want tranquility here? Question mark, exclamation mark. So the question becomes, and, well, why do Tzadikim want this? <laughs> if, if it's not good, if it's not appropriate. So the Rebbe says that in truth, the natural desire of a Tzadik to experience this tranquility is not a bodily or material tranquility. The Tzadik is actually seeking spiritual tranquility. He's not looking for an easy life in Avedis Hashem. The Rebbe says, this is perhaps captured in the words of Rambam, as they are found in the end of the ninth chapter of Hilchas Tshuva, where the Rambam says, speaking about his vision, or the vision of the future, he says, what was, what was the desire, what was the yearning of sages, of prophets, what were they looking forward to? Nisavu Kol Yisraeli says, all of Israel has yearned and continues to yearn for this day. Nevi'ehem v'chachamehem, their prophets, their sages, Li'amaysa Mashiach. Why? Kedeshi So that the challenges of trying to get by in a world that is hostile to us, the Jewish people, simply will fade away. We have these issues, challenges. More times than not, historically, the study of Torah was not encouraged, was discouraged, and sometimes actively outlawed. And so it has been with mitzvahs too. To do mitzvahs kahigin right. What did they want? Just leave us alone. We just want to do our thing. We want to study Torah, do mitzvahs. Don't get in our way, please. Stop trying to impede our spiritual growth. And then, there'll be an incredible explosion of knowledge. Knowledge will increase at a remarkable rate because we won't have to spend time dealing with all kinds of issues that crop up along the way. It can't be a bad thing. That's, that's what people have yearned for all along. And yet, Hashem doesn't seem pleased. And He says, no, no, Yaakov. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be that you'll be able to just devote yourself to spiritual pursuit. You're going to have to work at this. Why doesn't Hashem... Give that to Yaakov. The answer is because Hashem wants to bring Yaakov to a higher level. And Jacob will only come to a higher level when he will overcome this challenge. So he's being challenged intensely so that he can go higher. And the Rebbe says, this is precisely the message to all of us. If you're looking for 
a relaxed, easy, tranquil life. You're missing the point. So that kind of person is never going to get the relaxed, tranquil life. But who will get this life that's charmed? We don't have to work hard. You won't have to toil or worry about these things. A person who's not looking for it. The Yetzirah doesn't have a way of persuading you. Here he uses the word, two important words are yifat. What is the word yifat? Our sages tell us it means yifatim, get sweet talk, get coaxed. Here the translation, it doesn't even translate it. Frustrates me, heck out of me. He just says, you're not being swayed by the evil inclination or the indulgencies. For heaven's sake, Rabbeinu Bechai uses two words. Yisa'ehu means swayed. Or persuaded. What does yifat mean then? Well, sometimes we get sweet-talked into things. How did the first sin unfold? The proverbial nachash, the snake, the serpent, sweet-talked Chava into it. He convinced her to a mitzvah. Like it says in Hayom Yom, that we think that sometimes, we think that the Yitzhahara, the evil incarnation, always presents himself as an opposition to Torah and Yiddishkeit. It's not true. Sometimes you could have a very religious Yitzhahara, even a Hasidish Yitzhahara. It's beyond the purview of what we're talking about now. So they can sweet talk it. This person won't be able to be sweet talked. And he uses the word Kishfei Ha'ilam. The way the Mepharshim explained Kishfei Ha'ilam, it could be either be the enchanting things about this world. This word could be enchanting. He doesn't even bother translating it here. He doesn't bother translating it. And the sages, the commentaries on the Shara B'tochen, knock their brains out trying to understand what do you mean? Kishof means sorcery. They point to a conversation that happens between a man named Yehu and Yoram. Yoram is the son of a wicked witch of the West, the queen of the northern kingdom. Her name was Izevel. And Yoram says to, to, um, to Yehu, he says to him in the book of Kings, in the second book, in chapter 9, verse 22, he says to him, he says to him, um, How are you doing, Yehu? How's, how's things, he says. And Yehu answers, How well can things be? How well can things be with the, with the whoring, with the, 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 the enticements of you know, your mother, Izevel, and her many sorceries? The sorceries. She was a witch. I, I was using that euphemistically. She was an evil, wicked woman. Sorcery is a euphemism. You know, it's like, it's like when you make things enchanting. You enchant people. You make them do things they didn't mean to do. They didn't even want to do. Like the Marpala Nefesh says, the, the, the delights, the pleasures of this world. The Teval says that the pleasures of this world it's, 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 a, it's, it's a mirage, it's a hoax. He says a person thinks these are good, but they're not really good, they're destructive. Whether it's the drugs that people pursue, the illicit intimacy that people pursue, all these things are destructive. People who immerse themselves in this terrible reality, in the end, lose everything from it, but they're bewitched, enchanted. So Hashem is going to keep you busy. So you don't have time to get bewitched and enchanted. Right? Like, like how did the fellow say, I probably would sin. I have no time to sin. I'm so working so hard to make a living. But this person doesn't have to work hard to make a living. 
Why? Because he has a risk-free portfolio. He can't go wrong. He doesn't look at these things. He doesn't get drawn after all these things. The rabbis say, one second, Kishfil is a funny word. There's another way they say, perhaps it really is supposed to say, move the dot from the right to the left, and then the sin becomes like a samach, and it says, Kisfei ha'olam. What does Kisfei mean? Kisfei means a yearning, a desire, a craving, like we find in the words in Tehillim, David HaMelech says in the 84th Psalm, Nichsefa, v'gam kol sonafshi, my soul yearns, my soul pines for Hashem. Nichsefa Rashi says, Nishamda, it's nechmad, it's delightful for me, it's in, it's, it draws me in. Something beautiful about it. Mitzvah Sin says, It's a lust, it's a craving, it's a desire. And he says, this is actually found in the original scripture, in the book of Genesis, where Laban, Lavan says to Yaakov, I know, I know why you ran away from me. You yearned for your parents' home. So a person who yearns for materialism, even if it's a quiet yearning, if it's secretly, you would love to have A, B, C, or D. Ah, no good. This is the kind of person who's going to have to be challenged if they are to remain righteous. But the person who doesn't have any of these things, that person, that person indeed will find himself relieved of the burden of having to seek out and make use of the natural causes in order to obtain his or her livelihood and the various mechanisms that are required to achieve his objective of tarpei, of his livelihood. And why? Why is this person not going to be challenged like everybody else? Simple. Because the two reasons why a person has to be challenged don't apply to this person. The test. He doesn't need a test. The person, the person will kick back, rebel that a person will behave inappropriately because they have too much. It's not appropriate. It doesn't apply here. As such, this person, Hashem will provide for directly, without any toil. But, and there's a big but here, it's going to be it's going to be according to what a person needs, what's sufficient. What's sufficient? Sifukai is a person's basic needs. Mezoyne is his sustenance. So the Paslechem says, first kifi sifukai. First what a person needs. Needs, not wants. Basic necessity, not luxury. If a person is prepared to live an austere life, just the basics, no luxury, then he will receive mezoinah. Then he'll receive the sustenance because the sustenance that he needs is the bare minimum. That is to say, if a person has a desire for material plenty, if they are drawn after luxury, and we all are, don't expect your livelihood to come without effort because Hashem is doing it for your good. But if you're a person who truly doesn't care about the excesses and the lavish nature that, that we kind of hope for and expect out of life. But a person stays at the bare minimum. It's just like, you know, lowest ordinary standard of living, very basic. His luxury, his beauty in life is his spiritual pursuit. That's where he has luxurious things, not material things. Not raiment, adornment, 
not attire, not, wear, not, not, not wardrobe, not furniture, not beautiful possessions, not a fantastic, gorgeous home, beautiful yard. Nah, it doesn't interest him. Fancy car, irrelevant to him. This person will get exactly what he needs. How do we know this? How's there been a Baha'i Sashor? He says, because it says so. Kumeshakasov, as it's written in the book of Proverbs, in the 10th chapter, the third verse, Layarev Hashem Nefesh Tzadik, Hashem will not starve. It doesn't say Hashem fills up and satiates. Won't starve. The Nefesh Tzadik doesn't starve. And so, my friends, the inside job, the inside job, person's inside with Hashem. Hashem gives, takes care of the job. He, he doesn't have to worry. He has the perfect insurance, so to speak. He knows he won't go wrong. And because he's in a risk-free state, Hashem can provide for him and doesn't have to challenge him. The rest of us need to be challenged. So the reason we don't have whatever we need or think we need easily is not because Hashem can't. Hashem doesn't. And not because he wants to torment us, chas v'shalom, but because he loves us. And because... He wants us to be all we can be. And for most of us, that's only achieved by living in the milieu of the world as we know it and being challenged as people are. And that, my friends, is the next episode completed as we have returned to living with certainty, trying to understand how this betachen thing works so that we can work on better achieving it ourselves as we self-challenge. And remember, the more we'll self-challenge, the more we'll toil, the more we'll place effort in our avoidance Hashem, in our service to God, the less we'll have to be challenged on the outside. Thanks so much for joining. I hope you found this uplifting and inspirational. I do look forward to continuing to see you online and to studying Hashem's Torah, developing our betochen, our trust in Hashem together with you. Please take a moment to like, to share, and if you haven't yet, please subscribe, youtube.com forward slash Rabbi Mendel Kaplan. Again, greatly appreciate your coming on and joining today, and looking forward to continuing to study Torah together. Have a beautiful day.